Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So hello, this is Ashley. I am one of the Feminist Book Club content contributors, and I am joined today by Colleen Hubbard, and she is here to talk about her debut novel, Housebreaking. Colleen, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Ashley. It's nice to be here. So my first question is, what is your definition of feminism? Oh, Ashley, why are you hitting me with the hard question first? Um, I knew this was coming because I looked up other interviews and I knew that this question was coming. And yet, did I prepare myself? I did not. Um, I would say, I think feminism is a movement to ensure social, political, and personal equality for women in a world in which often that equality is denied. Is it a right answer? I don't know. I'm not saying that that's the right answer. I'm saying that that's my best guess. That is your answer. And for someone who didn't have one really five seconds ago, that is quite the definition. So thank you for sharing your definition of feminism. And what is housebreaking about? Housebreaking is about a young woman uh, named Dell who's 24 years old and is really living on the margins of society. So both of her parents have died. Um, she is living in a cheap, awful walk-up apartment um, where she is the unofficial subletter of her father's best friend, Tim. And she is working at a number of low-level jobs that she always impulsively quits after a few months. Uh, And so what happens very early on in the book is that she quits another job and this chain of events starts where she is forced to go back to her hometown, which she has been trying to avoid for many years and deal with the repercussions of her parents' death. Um, So there is, she and her parents were treated very badly in her hometown. She maintains a lot of anger and grief about that. And she makes a very unusual choice, which is to dismantle her family house and personally by hand, move it across a frozen pond over the course of one winter. So much of the book reminded, I had some pop culture or sort of um, film and TV references um, as I read the book. One of them was the film Young Adult uh, starring Charlize Theron. I also thought about Six Feet Under and just about family and grief and um, just those aspects. And also the film Life is a House with uh, Kevin Klein. Um, I just kept those those um, works in mind as I was reading um, this book. And the story is set during the 90s, yet it's not overtly the 90s. It's not like Lisa Frank and, you know, all these songs and things like that. How did you decide to write this big era to subtly drive the story? So uh, there were a few things going on. One was that I wanted cell phones not to be in constant everyday use because I wanted for a period of time in the book for the main character to be alone in a way that was profound and that it is currently pretty unavailable for people. And that's not to say that people don't feel loneliness or alone in 2022, but what that looks like right now is very different than what it looked like in the nineties. 
um, the characters in this book are older than I am. So in the 90s, when this book takes place, I would have been a high school student. Um, Dell is 24. And so we, I think we had a level of cultural overlap where I have memories of the things that she's talking about and the the people magazines that she picks up and flips through and things that would have been on the news. But I understood them. I had a, a child's understanding or an adolescent's understanding of these things. And she has an adult look at them. Um, so for me, I mentioned that profound aloneness, but also um, gay, gay people, gay men in particular, have a starring role in this book. And uh, the AIDS crisis was obviously something that was going on then. Um, there had just been, it was just a year, a couple of years past a big discovery um, in AIDS treatment that allowed people to live longer, but this is just past that. And so there is a long history behind this book of, of gay men who had HIV and had no hope at that time. And so I wanted to write a bit about that too. I had um, prior to moving to the UK, I lived in San Francisco for 10 years and I have many friends who are in their 50s and 60s who lived through the AIDS crisis as gay men and hearing their stories and hearing their stories about coming out to their families and how they felt about themselves as gay men and how they saw gay men as viewed in the world um, really affected me as a person. And I think that I couldn't help that coming through um, as a writer. It's interesting how you say in the 90s you were a teenager but of course, in the present, as you're writing the story, you're now a, a full-fledged adult. So to be able to have those parallels of some a semblance of the 90s, but more perspective as you're older and providing that for Dell, who's, um, who's understanding this new place in her life. She's only in her early, early 20s, mm-hmm. you know, so she's becoming an adult. So to have those parallels... Um, between you and the character are interesting. And that gets into my next question. Uh, Dell and the house have a, a house as self parallel. She's breaking down this house and she's also sort of breaking down herself. Like you said that she's worked a number of low level jobs. She hasn't really had anything steady in her life. And then all of a sudden she has this house. And even though it's not well put together, it is a, it is a house. And and she's also deteriorating as she's dismantling this house. She hurts her hip. There's a number of things that happen to her. Um, What was the character development, especially her meticulous manner as she was breaking down this house? So she's never had a goal that she's achieved. And I think that she is stuck in a kind of in her own view, a sort of permanent adolescence. Her parents have died and the people around her, the people that she's friends with are much older than she is. And they take her on with an air of, I think, almost paternalistic sympathy and feel bad for her because her life hasn't been fair and things that aren't right have happened to her. But I think also that that sticks her in this self-view of herself as an outsider. Herself is put upon herself in this difficult relationship with her family. And having this challenge of the house and dismantling the house forces her to acknowledge her own pain and grief, um, forces her to look at her parents as people and not just her parents and have come to an adult understanding of the people that her parents were um, to create a, a compassion and understanding and a love for them that is different than her feelings about them when she was a teenager or a child. And that forces her to look at herself differently as well and think about what she has to offer to other people, who she is as a friend, because also she's meeting people 
in this book who aren't obligated to be friends with her. She's meeting people where she has to think about, well, this person is, 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 has been kind to me, but what do I have to offer them um, as an adult, as, as a woman? And that's really different than where she starts at the beginning of the book where she, she is kind of a taker. She's a taker mm-hmm. and she has, she has to learn how to give and she has to learn how to create a sense of self that is not just based on the hurt and pain that she's experienced, but is based on what she has to offer other people. And in there, I would say that there's a sense of hope and redemption. I, I hope. And we learn, well, the reader learns her real name from someone who uh, was kind of distant towards her like she just Dell hears her name real name being called just out in the crowd and you know just that sort of her relationships with people and the distance that she kind of gives them but eventually she needs these people so just how that is a form of character development for her as well yeah and there's there's a there's a part of the book that I think is it's hopefully subtle where she first sets herself up with this new name. So she has a longer version of her, her name, which is what she's called as a teenager. And there is a, a segment in the book where she and her high school best friend go to a bar for the first time with fake IDs. And when they're going to the bar, they are coming up with alternate personas for themselves. And so that is the first time that Dell calls herself by the name Dell. And her idea of herself is this extremely cosmopolitan, successful businesswoman who's living in a city and has lots of money and She's just driving through town. And why has she stopped at this stupid bar? I don't know, but I might as well have a drink. Um, but who Dell actually is when Dell becomes an adult is very different than her teenage understanding or her teenage fantasy about what her adult life will look like. She hasn't graduated from high school. She has a GED. Um, she, she's working as a house cleaner until she gets fired. Um, so the I think um, how how Dell as a character develops is also tracked through that name, exactly as you're saying, where she goes from her her family name to to Dell as a fantasy of what she will be like as an adult woman, and then what she actually is when she's an adult woman. The story is funny. Thank you for saying that. I'm glad that you think that because I think it's very funny, but not everybody does. There were moments where, and it's not like laugh out loud, which I I don't necessarily need that kind of funny but it's just like you'll read like there was a scene where like a car was at 999 like 900 999,999 miles and I when I registered that number I laughed because I was like that's that's asinine Mm -hmm. so how did you decide or how did you welcome humor into the story I thought in some ways, it's a bit of a, a dark story. There are people, as I mentioned, there's homophobia. Um, her parents have died. Uh, AIDS is a thing um, that affects people who she loves very much. Um, and I think humor, a sense of humor was necessary. And for me as a person, I would say a sense of humor has been necessary for me in life in my darkest moments. Um, I can remember laughing with my younger brother at just really harsh realities when we were young children. And that's all we had. The only way that we had to make sense of things that were happening um, was to laugh at it and just say, well, what a ridiculous circumstance that we're in. Um, And I guess I brought that to the book. And I I also felt like the book, it needed that. It needed that sense of just absurdity and ridiculousness sometimes in order to carry you through. And also I think sometimes just her observation, she's such a, a weird and interesting and idiosyncratic person 
of course, her observations about the world around her are going to be kind of skewed in a way that's funny. And that's why we have those quotes like laugh at my laugh at my pain or humor is the best medicine because you know, there, there are some moments that afford you the opportunity to say, whoa, we went through that. Or like, you you know, you kind of have, you hopefully can have the laugh while it's going on, but also when you've gone through the situation, it's like, wow, we really went through that. And now we can make some good jokes about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. And you need, you need that, and you need that sort of break, don't you? You need that break in order to uh, understand and sort of consolidate in your mind things that have happened to you. Some of which are just sometimes awful things happen. Sometimes awful things happen in the world and a way that we can cope is by laughing. So you've mentioned Tim and that he is a gay man. And you've also shared, um, writing about the AIDS crisis at this time. How would you write of Tim in the present day? Hmm. I think, I think Tim in the present day could be very similar to how he is. He is, so Tim is a man who's in his mid fifties. He is it's kind of an older version of Dell. He definitely sees himself as an outsider and a loner, but he likes it. He lives in a walk-up apartment in a, an old Italian part of town where he pays the rent in a very sketchy, illegal way by just dropping off cash at a, a local um, corner store, a bodega. And Tim works as a photo processor at a uh, an equivalent of a Walgreens. That isn't really a Walgreens. So one, Tim wouldn't work as a photo processor because those counters don't exist anymore. But I think that there are just still some people who sort of, you know, live on the fringes of society who are difficult to meet because they make themselves difficult to meet, but they have their little networks and friends. And Tim has friends and people he wants to see, but he's also very comfortable being a loner. For him, it's what he wants. And there, there are moments in the book when he has the opportunity to have relationships, closer relationships, and he actually doesn't want them. It's not, it's not what he's looking for. And it's, it's not, he's not looking for a romantic happy ending and he he's comfortable and confident being alone. And that sort of forces Dell to think about whether she is that way as well, or she wants to make different choices. Yeah. The, the photo processing, just hearing you say that, I think about now that like this, the counters at CVS Yeah, and, and it's just thinking about how the world has changed and yeah, that, that there's just so much <laughs> character development in that, in that time frame for him, just to see him in the nineties and then to see him now. And as a still a, would be a confidant to somebody. Definitely. And I think he would be that guy in your neighborhood who just, you know, had it definitely living in a city, um, definitely living in a rental and with some sort of weird hobby with like, 10,000 records albums in his basement that he brings out and listens to on the sidewalk and summer, but doesn't really want to talk to anybody and just has, you know, a weird hobby that everybody knows about and a sort of spiky personality, but he does, he has his friends, but he's not, he's very picky about who those friends are. So much of society equates age with milestones. You said that Dell is 24 what was pertinent about Dell's experiences um, as she handles her responsibility, responsibilities? In, term, in terms of her age? Yes. Um, well, I didn't want her to be, I wanted her to be a person who had a sense of redemption, 
had a sense that she could change her life. And her question had to be whether she wanted to do that or not. So I would say um, Tim and Dell sort of play against each other and that Tim is much, much older and much more confident about what he wants. And she's at a stage in her life where she has to think about what she wants. So what does she want her life to look like? Does she want something um, as unconventional as Tim's life? Does she want something a lot more conventional? Does she want to, you know, there's a part in the book where she has the opportunity to take quite a bit of money and change her life completely and has to think about what that would look like. So does she want to, you know, go to school to become a dental hygienist or a beautician or work in auto body repair, or does she want to move to Nevada and be a waitress and just keep doing what she has been doing, which is quitting jobs every six months. And that's something that she seriously considers. She thinks about what her life could be like and what she wants it to look like. And I like I like that age. I like the the 20s as an age of possibility where you are really sort of working at the clay of your life and thinking about how you want it to be shaped. And you can change the shape of your life at any age. People who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s are learning new things and trying new things. But the 20s are a particular stage, I think, 20s and early 30s, where you're making big choices about, for example, what a family looks like, uh, what a career looks like that have an impact on the rest of your life and that look different when you make changes in later life. And it's you, your twenties are the, your first full decade as an adult. Mm. So to really, you know, feel like by that end of the decade, you have to have everything figured out. Hopefully you have such a long life where 80 you're like, Oh, I want to do something different. I want to take up crocheting or I want to run a marathon. Mm. I was having a conversation with a friend about that. And because she works with high school students and it's just such a, it's such a wonderful age, but it's also an age where most students feel like they have to have everything figured out. And so much pressure. Yeah. It's so much pressure and it's, it's, um, can be really detrimental to them and their psyche and, then you, you kind of get out of, as we were talking about humor, you know, you get out of that time and you're like, wow, I didn't have to have everything figured out. You get to a certain point in your life where it's like, okay, I still get to figure things out. So uh, that's why I was eager to ask that question about age and milestones. Yeah. And with Dell, I think that the interesting thing for me writing about her was that she is so far in the fringe of society. That's those sorts of questions, I think that are normal, like, you know, um, do you want to go to college? Do you want, do you want a boyfriend or girlfriend? Um, do you want a boy, a serious boyfriend or girlfriend, or do you want flings? That is so far outside of what her normal everyday reality is, where she is just um, barely paying rent, barely working and hanging out with um, a small group of very idiosyncratic people who are 30 years older than she is. There's a point when she is thinking about getting um, a, just a normal, renting a normal apartment. And she thinks about, well, what, how would that actually be? Can I really live with, you know, a, another 25 year old who works for an advertising agency and who goes on expensive international trips? No, it, because her life, it doesn't look like that. She doesn't have that amount of money. She doesn't have that background. She didn't go to college. And so she, her, her life looks very different than what my life would have looked like as a, I would say a much more conventional 24 year old. So my next question, I can't remember why I wanted to ask this. I think it was just a candy mentioned in the book. But what is your favorite movie, Candy? Oh my gosh. Um, I like I like pick a mix, which I don't do in a COVID, currently COVID lifestyle, would not go for the little scoop and have, fill a bag up with many different candies ah, other people have sneezed over, which pick and mix, I believe, is in the book. I think during 
the grocery store scene, there's a moment when somebody gets sick on the pick and mix that has all of the different um, plastic covers where you get to make your own mix of candy. I really like gummy candy, I would say. That's my go-to if I had to pick only one. I like um, Haribo raspberries, the ones that are black and red Haribo raspberries. That is my absolute favorite of all candies. But I like the pick and mix. I like a little bit of everything. I have yet to meet someone who doesn't like Haribo candy. Oh, they're lovely. They're lovely. Yes. And I actually, um, I did a pick and mix <laughs> probably a couple of months ago, just, just out of the blue. And I got the milk chocolate cookie dough, covered mm-hmm. cookie dough. And yeah. it's just, it was just divine. Oh, I love milk chocolate. Oh, yes. Now yes. you're reminding me of American candies that I can't get in the UK. Milk does. Ah, oh, yum. I want those now. Do you have a favorite candy in the UK? Um, so I love, now I can't think of what they're called, but they're little Easter candies that are like a hard coated candy outside of um, like a hard candy shell outside of a chocolate egg. And they only come out at Easter and those are extremely delicious. And I love them. Cadbury chocolate is extremely delicious. There's a bar called the lion bar that I've Mm. only had once. It is a memorable experience. It had, I think uh, maybe it has a, like a biscuit base and caramel and chocolate. It's lovely. British chocolate is very good and is better than American chocolate. I would say. I would assume so. Yes. Um, So as we conclude this conversation, you're in the UK, but are you, would there be any American bookstores you would like our audience to buy from or just a bookstore that you would like to share? Yeah, I would say there are two that are particularly close to my heart and I am very happy um, to be having events at both of them. One is RJ Julia, which is in Connecticut. It is a little independent bookstore um, on the Connecticut shore and I love it. It's wonderful. Um, And it also has an outlet in my hometown of Middletown, Connecticut and also Green Apple Books in San Francisco where I'm having an event um, in a couple of weeks, those are both wonderful independent bookstores where I personally do my shopping when I am able to buy books in the United States. And is there an organization that you would like to amplify to our audience, just of, of a matter that's close to your heart? Um, yes, I would say I have, um, I've worked in healthcare for quite a long time and a place that I have a number of friends that work at is called Asian Health Services. It is a nonprofit hospital in Oakland, California that serves a low-income community of of people who speak um, languages of Asia. And they provide in-language services, meaning that um, if you are on a low income and you primarily speak, um, for example, uh, Mandarin, you can go there and have a doctor who can speak Mandarin to you and provide you services at a reasonable rate. So I have uh, many friends who work there and it would be a cause that I would be very happy to support. Thank you for sharing your bookstores, your, the organization, and as well as the details about housebreaking and for joining us on the Feminist Book Club podcast. Thank you, Ashley. It's wonderful talking to you. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a thing.